Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Bowling. With me, as always, is Brandon Odo. Hello. And we have two special guests with us today. Um, Tyler Christoph. I knew I was going to say it wrong. <laughs> you could say Christopheli. That's Christ- fine, too. Christopheli. Christopheli. Think of Foley bag. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. We have two special guests with us today. Tyler Christoph. Not- <laughs> you can keep this it's in. It's in this my is, head this is now. Great stuff. Uh, Christopheli. Christ- Tyler Christopheli and Sam Ireland from Foam Frat. And they are both um, critical care paramedic flight folks. Uh, guys, do you want to? Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Tyler, go ahead. Yeah, I'm Tyler. Yeah, I'm Tyler Christa, Christopheli. Christopheli. I work as a flight paramedic up in uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota area. I live in Wisconsin, but the program I work for is out of Minneapolis. And I've been doing flight for about two years. And before that, I did uh, 10 years of ground critical care transport. That's actually where Sam and I met. Yeah, and my I'm pretty much up here by uh, by Tyler, same neck of the woods. We used to teach a lot of classes together, work at the same place, uh, ground critical care transport. And we fo or uh, co-founded, co-founded, co-founded <laughs> Foam Fred together, and uh, we've been doing that for. I mean, I think it's going to be coming out. Is is this year going to be three years, Tyler? Yeah, three years. Three years. And so yeah, we put out blogs, podcasts, and then we also teach some courses and stuff like that online. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're a big fan of the uh, podcast. I I love the idea of putting people through scenarios and hearing how others would uh, react to different situations, different people who have particular passions in the field, whether that be cardiology or respiratory. It's something that I have actually, I've, I've listened to every single episode you guys have done, and I feel like this type of style is super beneficial because I start thinking of what I would do, and then I can contrast it with what that that person you're talking to and then you guys as well so it's a it's a great gig i like it a lot well thanks so we're gonna do a a little pre-hospital transport stuff today brandon you want to kick us off oh boy do i ever all right gentlemen so you are a two-person flight crew and you have been dispatched to uh, a quote-unquote outside hospital as we would say this is a about 150 bed community hospital and they're trying to transfer a patient. Um, it's going to be about a 60-minute flight to a, a tertiary center. The patient is a 55-year-old male. He has a history of diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, which has been stable. He has some CKD, and he is obese, weighing about 100 kilos. And he presented to their ED there with essentially DKA. So he came in with a glucose in the 500s. Potassium was about 6 uh, his bicarb was 10. So you arrive there, and you find him in the ED. And uh, he's a fairly large white male. He looks groggy and a little confused, but he is awake. And he's sitting there breathing on BiPAP. They put him on that for a little bit of hypoxia and hypercarbia. Uh, he's on 10 over 5 with 50% FiO2 and satting about 90% on that. His blood pressure is 134 over 60. His heart rate is 110. His respiratory rate is 24. He has a single 20-gauge IV in his left AC, and he's on an insulin drip at 8 units. So talk to me a little bit about how you're going to approach this scene, things you're thinking about, any more information you'd like, and how you're going to start getting set up and transitioning this patient into your care. I just want to ask a little bit more about his mental status because 
um, in, in the event, unfortunate event that we would have to place a tube, which we don't want to in this, this patient, um, we would have to get set up for that. What, can you tell me a little bit more about his mental status? Is he answering questions appropriately? Is he, you know, does he track us with his eyes when we come in the room? Yeah, you know, his eyes are closed. When you walk into the room, they open. He tracks you. He's able to communicate with you. He's just uh, a little sleepy, and he takes kind of a, a little bit of um, uh, reorienting and kind of reminding you're there. He tends to get distracted a little bit. But he is awake, and you would say with it. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So when I'm walking in to a DKA patient, uh, you know, automatically I start thinking about, you know, all right, what what was their sugar when they came in? And then what is their sugar now? Because I, I kind of want to see where that's going to fall during the transport. So he came in with uh, what was his initial sugar? And then what is it now? 550 was the initial. What are we at now? The most recent finger stick was 400, um, but he's only been on the drip for about an hour. He got bolused eight units, and then they put him on eight units. So he's dropped 100 over an hour? Yeah, 150. 150 over an hour. So it's going, well, they did bolus him, so I'd be interested to see if that trend is going to continue. I'd, I'd want to know, like, when they took the last one, and then we could, if it's been like a half an hour, we can kind of gauge it. 150 is, is a little quick. We'd probably like to see that a little bit more around like 75-ish to maybe to 100 max. But if they bolus them, it, you know, it, it could have dropped a little bit more precipitously than just having an, an infusion going. So we have, that's, that's on our radar. It's been almost an hour since his last finger stick. So they do check another one for you. And it's now about 350. Okay. Yeah, so we're we're seeing the same trend coming down. So, um, can you tell us a little bit more about his labs? Sure, specifically uh, his uh, chem panel, and then a uh, if they have an ABG, otherwise a BBG is fine too. Sure, um, they have both. In fact, um, his ABG when he initially presented was a pH of seven point one. His PCO two was fifty three. PO two was seventy. This was on room air, and. Um, his bicarb was 16 on that. Um, his initial sodium was 125. His chloride was 92. As I said, his K was 6. And bicarb was 10. Um, what else? His creatinine was about 6. And his BUN was about 110. Anything else? And we already have the glucose. Yeah, so in, in that, those were labs when he first came in, correct? Mm-hmm. I was just presenting labs. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, my, my thought process right now is that potassium of six is probably lower and it could be significantly lower by now because we've started that shifting process. So I am probably not going to delay the transport to get a potassium, um, but we are dropping our sugar faster than I would like. And so he was at, he said he was a hundred kilos and they're running him at uh, eight units an hour, which is interesting because usually 0.1 would put him at 10 units an hour. So I'm wondering if they made an adjustment because they thought he was dropping too fast. And that's why they went from 100 to 80, or I'm sorry, from from 10 to 8. This was what they started him on initially. And you ask why, and they sort of wave their hands and say, eh, seemed about right. <laughs> All right. Well, fortunately, we have an epoch in flight, but we do not have potassium on our helicopter. So there's a couple things I always like to ask for before I'm gonna start moving. And I like to get a liter bag of D5W in case I need to mix some isotonic bicarb. 
and I also want to take some potassium with me as well because uh, the goal is to not stop this insulin. That's what's going to resolve this acidosis is the insulin and stopping the insulin is a failure. I'm happy that his mental status is good and I'm okay with him being a little bit tired. That's fine. I can sit there with a suction and if he got some secretions, get those out. I do not want to intubate him, um, but we are dropping the sugar a little fast. Maybe that's a bigger issue with, uh, with kids. But we still got to worry that uh, he could develop some cerebral edema if we drop it too quick. So you're going to start him on some D5W with potassium, or are you just thinking about it? No, not not yet. I want to I want to get my uh, I want to get my epoch. So for for those of us who don't fly, right? Um, walk us walk me through what do you have in terms of labs and drugs and stuff available to you on the aircraft. Yeah, so for this patient specifically? Yeah, or just, I mean, just in general, but we, carry we a can lot kind of, of drugs. focus on, on this guy. Yeah, so we carry an EPOC, which gives us a chem panel uh, barring magnesium. That's the only chemical, that, or that's the only uh, electrolyte that we can't get a value on. So we carry uh, that EPOC, and we get a blood sample off of that, uh, usually venous, and that'll give us a, a venous blood gas and it'll give us a chem panel. Uh, we don't carry... Uh, potassium. That's really the only electrolyte that we don't carry. Unless you're given LR. Yeah, unless we're giving LR and then you're tied to whatever the potassium content within the LR is. But you don't keep like runs of K by themselves. So you're saying, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we don't have like a toy. So that's something that we would have to get from pharmacy or from, you know, just if they have it on hand at the sending ED. That's something that we would have to, to grab from them. And with his K, I don't want to get off topic, but it was with his K being six and that precipitous drop i mean we're probably just starting some some maintenance i forget what the cutoff is if it's about 5.5 you you run it at i think it's what is it 20 and then uh, just to keep him from from dropping too much you can anticipate he's gonna drop a bit yeah that, and that, that happens all the time in ems transports is if they're able to get a potassium but usually what happens is they check the sugar and the sugar's dropped very fast and so what they do is they just stop the insulin and that's not really what you want to do. You'd almost rather give them some sugar, give them some dextrose, because you want to keep that insulin running uh, to resolve that acidosis and to close up that anion gap. And so that's why I like to bring dextrose if I can. Um, we have dextrose in the, uh, in the helicopter, but we only carry sodium chloride. We do not have LR, and we don't have bags of uh, dextrose, like D5 solution. So if I look in the, you know, the chloride content, I think he said was 92. Oh, but that, that rapidly changes. That was before we started resuscitating them. And so what I've typically find is the EDs have gotten two to three liters of sodium chloride in, and they're starting to develop a little bit of a hyperchloremic acidosis, which makes it harder to follow that anion gap as it starts closing when we get rid of the beta-hydroxybutyrate. Because as we're closing that, uh, now chloride is taking up that space, and it's gets a little bit harder for that bicarb to return to normal, which brings us to the point of, do we want to give bicarb or not? I don't know. Do we? <laughs> what do you think? What do you think? Uh, Sam? You asking me? No, I don't want to give bicarb. It's, bicarb is a weak anion, and so no amount, when, when that ketone is taking up that anion gap, the chloride is a strong anion, and so that chloride is already in its base form, but that bicarbonate, no matter how much you give, it's always going to dissociate into a weaker anion, and so it's not going to—it's never going to raise the bicarbonate as long as that—that that, uh, those ketones are holding it down. 
And so like you were talking about before, you have to close that anion gap in order for that bicarbonate to be able to return on its own. The other thing about giving bicarbonate to a patient like this is that, yeah, he's on bi or he's on BiPAP right now, but he's trying to uh, blow off as much CO2 as he can. And when that <laughs> bicarbonate dissociates, and then plus the native CO2 that's in that ampule, when you give that to that patient, they're going to feel like they are drowning underwater. And if they already are you know, not very with it, you might push them over the edge into like a hypercarbic encephalopathy. And then you've got a whole nother problem on your hand. On your hands. Yeah, I don't, I don't like bicarb for this patient, and uh, but the, here's the, here's the, here's the butt of this is I thought you said he had a little bit of uh, chronic kidney disease. Did you say he did? I did say that. Yeah, so he's a CKD or so. Uh, if you are, depends on how you, what you extrapolate from the the bicarb ICU trial, but you could say that if his kidneys aren't going to make bicarb, then it's going to be hard for his bicarb to return to normal. And maybe this is a patient that we switch from sodium chloride to an isotonic bicarb. So we put three amps of bicarb in a bag of D5, and we let that run in. Yeah, sodium-free chloride. And maybe maybe that'll keep the patient. I think the uh, it, was a, it was a false study. I mean, a, a negative study. But the secondary endpoint was keeping the patients off of dialysis. And, you know, they had a pretty low threshold for when they put them on dialysis. I don't remember what it was. I want to say it was like 7.2 or something like that. But that could be a, uh, depending on how you interpret that literature, maybe this patient could use some sodium or some uh, chloride-free sodium in, in means of uh, isotonic bicarb. And, of course, you're talking about an infusion not pushing bicarb. That's still another matter. That's what I'm against. We don't want to be pushing amps of bicarb, like, ever. No, I'm pushing it as fast as I can. It's no, <laughs> it is the adenosine of bicarb. Yeah, <laughs> but isotonic bicarb, I think we could avoid some of that hypercarbia, and I think that that's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, van- not. I don't want to say vanilla, like it's not enough, but I think that's an appropriate treatment without going overboard on that CO2 and, and the bicarbonate right away. Yeah, we don't want to push. No, no pushing ampules of bicarb. <laughs> no pushing unless it's of unless it's like. You know, this isn't a DKA patient, but the only time I'm okay pushing it is maybe a tricyclic antidepressant overdose that's like super sick, or somebody who is herniating and you don't have three percent at bedside. Possibly, maybe that's a, a patient that you push it on. Sure. Otherwise, it's a no go for the push. All right. So you throw three amps of bicarb in a liter of D5, and you start running that. Anything else you're thinking about, or you want to know before you get out of here? We would probably, honestly, like, we're not in a super rush to get this person out of here. I would just be interested if, you know, depending on how long it took us to do that, if we haven't adjusted that insulin dose, I don't remember if we did or not, but we'd, we'd want to know if it was kind of leveling off and slowing down on how fast his, uh, how fast his sugar was dropping. That was really the only, not the only thing, but that, that was something that I wanted to keep an eye on. So does, does that kind of normalize how fast his sugar is dropping? What, the D5? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you start running that kind of early when you arrive there, and by the time you've gotten everything situated, it's been maybe half an hour. So they stick his finger again, and he's down to about last was three fifty, and now it's three twenty five after half an hour. After that's okay. Yeah, okay. Tyler, are you okay with that? Yeah, no, that's fine. I mean, he's still dropped. If you look at his total time frame, he's still dropped a little quick. So over a half an hour, if he's only dropped by. 25 that's 50 for the hour and so eventually by by the end of our transport he'll have equaled out to probably where he should be since they dropped him too fast in the first place what's the what's the rate you want to see 
so I like to I like to stay in the 75 range. You can go as fast as 100, but I'm comfortable at 75 because that gives them a little bit of leeway either way. An hour. An hour. Yeah, the other thing that's uh, worth mentioning here is that uh, most EMS glucometers only go up to 500. And so if you have a patient that comes in at, you know, 700 and you're shipping them out and let's just say they, they take another reading and it says high, it doesn't say anything, uh, that could be going from 700 to uh, 600. And until they get down to 500, they're not going to be able to keep track of so that. It's going to keep saying high, they're flying blind. Yeah, exactly. Unless they have an epoch. Now, epoch e even the can, epochs yeah. are limited too. So what our, does it go up to? Our epoch, I believe, only goes up to 500 as well. Oh. Yeah, so uh, that's something that I like to keep an eye on and to look at how fast they dropped there uh, because um, I'm not, I'm not going to turn down the insulin, but I'm probably going to add on some dextrose. Okay. All right, so you get them sort of settled to the best of your ability. You get them loaded up, and you guys take off. And you're oh, I want to take. I just want to interrupt you real quick. We never asked how much fluid this patient received. I know his blood pressure is okay right now, but what? How, how much fluid has has this patient actually received? He's been bolused uh, about four liters of saline okay. in the ED, and then between his drips, he's gotten about another five hundred, so maybe four and a half. Okay, liters. sorry. Continue. I don't mean to. I don't mean to interrupt. I just I, that was on my brain. I'm like I didn't ask about fluids at all. Okay. Okay. I'm good now. So you guys get 10, 15 minutes into your trip here, and you're starting to think that it might be an okay day. Um, but then you take a look at the patient, and he's starting to become a little more tachypnic and a little more distressed looking, a little bit diaphoretic and pale and just a little more unwell. And you cycle off a of blood pressure, and it's dropped now to about 90 over 40, the map of about 55. What is your approach to this patient who is newly hypotensive for unclear reasons during transport? So the first thing I'm going to do is uh, probably start running in some more fluid. Um, while that's going, I'm going to grab my ultrasound and do a quick rush exam. Oh. So with your ultrasound, you appreciate no free fluid in the abdomen. Okay. Uh, the aorta looks unremarkable. Uh, you do see some bilateral diffuse B lines in the lungs. And uh, when you look at the heart, it looks very much underfilled with a, a flat collapsing IVC. Otherwise, the function looks okay. It looks like there is perhaps some thickening and uh, perhaps some diastolic failure, but good systolic function. But it all looks rather dry. So I see a hyperdynamic heart, but yes. the cardiac activity looks good. Yes. Yeah, and so and, and I'm seeing some diffuse B lines. So, you know... If I saw a, a sick-looking heart and the diffuse B lines, I may think that this is uh, pulmonary edema backing up from cardiogenic uh, failure. But yeah, I don't see that. It looks like the heart's pumping what what it's getting. So I gotta I gotta wonder if there's something secondary to this. And with this history of uh, a lot of bad stuff, I think you said he was a diabetic. He had a uh, kidney disease. Usually. Patients who are diabetics, um, when they have these flare-ups, especially in the older age, the only reason they really get DKA is if they're not taking care of themselves or they are have some sort of secondary infection that's going on. So do I see any obvious necrotic toes or anything that would lead me towards the thought that this guy could be uh, suffering from some sort of distributive shock from, uh, we'll say, sepsis or SIRS? And two, the other thing I was just thinking of I wanted to throw in there is 
probably the first thing and and I guess we are leaning more towards a phase of shock here, but if he has any fluid in his lungs, we would want to maybe consider that uh, a hypotonic shift could contribute to some third spacing fluid as well. But please, yeah, yeah, I want to know, is there anything anything else that leads us to like a distributed form of shock? So you, you take a look at him externally, and there's nothing real obvious. He doesn't seem to have a, a weeping wound or anything. Uh, but he he doesn't look like a person who is terribly well on a good day, and you're you're sort of going over things when he he kind of turns and looks at you, and then he he vomits, and he vomits in his bipap. <laughs> yes. Oh no. <laughs> so you you pull off his mask, and you note that what he's vomiting is in fact blood, and it's not bright red but it is red and it is voluminous and he kind of blinks and sighs and then he vomits on you again and it, he doesn't really look responsive at this point you, you slap him and rub him a little bit and he doesn't do much for you and the blood pressure cycles again and it's down to 80 over a 40 yeah, this isn't this isn't fun. This isn't what I was wanting to do with this guy. But I knew that he was gonna say something like this when he was like, "You're about 15 minutes into your flight. And you're <laughs> it's a good day." I was like, "Well, he's gonna turn it into a bad day now." This is <laughs> I wasn't anticipating this though. Yeah, so uh, he's he's not responding at all. He's unresponsive and he is vomiting blood. You're able and to get I, him to groan a little if you really rub his chest, but that's about it. All right. Yeah. So we got to start suctioning him. You know, we, mm-hmm. gra- we have to grab that decanto catheter. Yeah, we grab our decanto catheter, start suctioning. While that's happening, while Sam's suctioning, I'm going to throw together <laughs> uh, four milligrams in a 250 bag of levofed. I'm going to start that off at five mics a minute. Uh, that's kind of my go-to when I got a hypotensive patient with a, I can't figure out exactly why, and they've got tons of fluid already. Uh, I'm going to start some levofed. Uh, we're going to suction them out. I'm going to put on a nasal cannula at 15 liters, and I'm going to uh, – it depends on what his, what his uh, ventilation rate is. If Is he becoming uh, – is he developing respiratory distress at all, or is he uh, – That's That was my question. Just, like, during this vomiting episode, you said he was only groaning to, like, a like a painful response. Is he maintaining any kind of respiratory effort at this time or he's not? He's breathing. You would describe it as um, – Agonal. Uh, he's sitting now oh, in great. the mid eighties. Right, of course, yeah, you took well, his mask off. What's that? He took. He took his mask off, of course, which may not be helping. But yeah. <laughs> in between those vom, probably the easiest thing to do at this point is in between those vomiting episodes. Like we may have, like like Tyler said, we want to wash out some of that dead space because it sounds like he's he, he does require an advanced airway. Um, probably the easiest thing to do is set our ventilator to the apnea backup and then that will allow me to get a good two-handed mask seal on his face and the ventilator can bag valve mask him and then if he does start to regurgitate again then i can suction him out some more um tyler what do you think about intubation i mean intubation versus a superglottic airway in him at this point yeah i'm completely cool doing a superglottic airway um and i like an og with an og tube yeah, I mean, he's no longer compensating for this acidosis with his ventilations anymore. And, uh, you know, we're, if he's agonally breathing, then we are now in the failure section of respiratory t- 
distress and we've transitioned to respiratory failure. So I like that idea, 100% FiO2, and we switch over to a, a spontaneous rate. On the Hamilton, it's called NIVST, where we can set an actual rate in. Um, I'm not, I don't think we need a ton of PEEP, but you know, I'll start off with five and increase the driving pressure. So we'll go from, uh, we'll say mm -hmm. five, and then we'll, we'll set the inspiratory pressure at, I'm, I'm fine with like a delta of like 10, 10, 15. Start yeah, letting we have to continue moving minute volume. So he's going to need a big difference between his inspiratory. Not a big difference because if he's if he's somewhat breathing, but he's he's going to need a, a decent difference between his peep and his peak inspiratory pressure. Yeah, and most likely his end tidal CO two inline adapter is still on that non invasive mask from when he was on mm -hmm. when he was on BiPAP. So that'll let us know we have effective ventilation. So Sam's doing that. I mix up a levofed drip, and I started that at five. I'm starting to draw up my my RSI medications, and uh, he got a pr pretty healthy heart. So I think I'm probably going to go with a uh, hundred of ketamine, and we'll do a hundred of rocaronium. Uh, but I'm not pushing that yet. I'm just drawing that up. Does blood pressure improve with the uh, levofed? And this is you're running through his single IV. <laughs> oh no, I forgot about that. At this, I wanted to say something about that. He only had a single 20-gauge IV at the sending. We forgot about that. We should have started another line. No, I, I mean, we got enough happening right now, so I'm probably going to drill him. Yeah, I'll put a humeral head IO in. Okay. Yeah. So you start running in some levofed, and you're now pre-oxygenating him with a mask or with a uh, superglottic airway? No, P is not. Uh, we have not put in a superglottic. Okay, so yet. you're using the we'll mask. We'll say still the mask. So yeah, I'm, he's got yeah, an I'm, oral I'm using airway. the ventilator and a mask. Okay. Yeah. Uh, his blood pressure does come up a little, um, and you're perhaps in the 60s over 50s. His map is maybe in the high 50s. He's tachycardic now at about 140, um, and his SAT is in the high 80s. Seems to be the best you could do on 100%. Does it seem like he's aspirated a decent amount of that blood and vomit? Based on what? I mean, does does he sound? I guess we can't listen in the uh, in the helicopter. We wouldn't be able to tell if he's got like coarse ronchi or anything like that. So I guess maybe we don't, we can't use that at this time. He sounds a little gurgly, but it's hard to tell what's just in his mouth versus his lungs. You put your head up next <laughs> to his mouth. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So, so he's still hypotensive. He's now tachycardic and we can't get our sats up, but the, you know, his blood pressure is kind of low. So um, what does our plath look like? Is, can we say that that SPO2 is pretty reliable? It looks beautiful. It looks like the Rolling oh. Alps. <laughs> <laughs> While you're considering the beauty of his pleth, he vomits again. And um, it, it, this must be almost a, a leer now that he's put out on himself and on your uniform. And we're talking about pure blood-looking vomit it, here? If it's not pure blood, it's close to it. Okay. Yeah, so if, if we're not oxygenating, he keeps puking. Um, we've, his blood pressure is improving. So... Eventually, we're going to have to pull the uh, the plug on intubating him. He's gotten volume. We have a, a presser on. We're trying to oxygenate. So I'm okay with doing a rapid sequence airway at this point because I don't want him to keep vomiting. And we, you know, we're he's not like he's strapped to a board, but we're we got him sitting up a little bit. We're trying to when he vomits, put him to the side. We got the suction in the corner of his mouth. I don't know where this blood is coming from at the moment, but uh, I don't like it. And you're, you, you said it's a, a bright blood or is it is it darker? It's reasonably dark. 
It's re- okay, so it's probably still got some of the stomach acid that's breaking it up. So the I'm okay thing too. I was thinking because he's got a bad shock index right now, so somebody be like, "Well, you can't throw it." You know, you can't throw an advanced airway. But we're already positively pressure ventilating him, and we probably won't change those pressures once that endotracheal tube is locked in. So we're probably seeing an okay, uh, an approximately accurate blood pressure of what his chest looks like under positive pressure right now from what we're doing and what it'll be once the endotracheal tube is in. Yeah, the only difference would be once we give our induction meds and we drop that that mean systemic filling pressure a little bit, but we have Mm -hmm. levofed on to counteract that. So I'm uh, I'm okay now with doing 100 ketamine, very slowly pushed, and I'm going to push that in. And, and then doing a 100 of rocaronium. Now, once he becomes paralyzed, I'm going to uh, insert a uh, King LT airway. And are you comfortable with uh, your ability to protect the airway with that? Yeah, I am. Yeah, and what's nice about that is I can pass a, uh, an OG tube in right through the gastric port of that. So I can put that in to remove any of the uh, decant decontaminate or the uh, contaminant before it even gets to uh, the distal cuff of that so i'm okay putting in a king and then passing that og tube through there probably like an 18 french is what i'd throw in and is this going to be a temporizing measure or is this going to be your definitive airway um so define definitive airway do you have any plans to intubate him after no not right now all right so you are able to place a king airway and you follow that with an og tube and you place that to suction, and you suck out perhaps another liter and a half of blood. Um, it's continuing to sort of gradually put out. Um, after inserting your airway in your drugs, his blood pressure is perhaps in the 70s, over 30s or thereabouts. Uh, his MAP is you know, mid to high 50s, and his heart rate is in the 120s. He's now satting 87 on 100% oxygen, and how much PEEP was that? We started at five. We hadn't made any definitive adjustments since we placed that ventilator on the superglottic. We're not gonna be able to go up too much. Tyler, do you know offhand how much PEEP the king is rated for? Yeah, the king's fine. It's the eye gel that you run into issues with it becoming displaced as you increase the PEEP above five. So I don't have any problem going up to 10, but I wanna go up to seven and see I want to find a little a midpoint between five and ten, so I'll probably go up to seven on there. I'm at a hundred percent FiO two, and I want to make sure that my minute volume is uh, correlating with whatever his uh, it, it was beforehand. So if his minute volume, I'm guessing, was very high as he was trying to compensate, I'm going to do the same. So probably double what his normal minute volume would be. Looking at possibly you know right around that. 12 liters or so a minute. So on your kind of BiPAP setup, his minute ventilation was uh, about 11 liters. I assume you're not leaving him on a spontaneous mode. Um, What are you putting him on now? Oh, other question. What was his rate when he was at 11 liters? He was breathing at um, about 18, 20 times a a minute. You said his minute volume was like 11 before. Sure. Yeah, so I'll put him on a pressure control. And I will set that pressure to uh, have my peep set at seven. I'll put my inspiratory pressure to, uh, I'll say probably 15, 10 or 15, and see what type of minute volumes I get, or what type of uh, tidal volumes that gets me. 
Yeah, we would want to know what his title volume was spontaneously and what pressure. So he was on like 10 over 5, I think, when we started. We'd have to look at that title volume. And then since he's now not, his chest isn't active in accepting that breath, we're, we're only pushing that diaphragm in his chest. And being a heavier guy as well, um, we're going to have to increase that pressure control breath higher than that pressure support breath was. So we'd probably try to match that rate, probably set it at approximately 20 and then try to match that same tidal volume that he was moving before if that was working for his compensation yeah and that in the and we're cranking up that leave to 10 now so leave goes to 10 peep goes to seven and i want to see how that looks while that's happening and sam's making those changes i'm getting the epoch uh, we already have the humoral head eye in uh, I owe him and then i want to start drawing it because i don't want to forget about that potassium issue so I'm setting up my epoch. Sam's taking care of those other titrations. And then what does our values look like now as far as SpO2 and MAP? So you initially have a, a good response to your blood pressure. And you have his MAPs up in the 70s or so. Um, and as you're tinkering around, you, you see it start to drift down again. Um, now it's more around 60 in the, or the high 50s. Um, he's satting okay now. He's in the low 90s. Uh, and he's put out another three or four hundred cc's from his og and and then uh, i redraw my potassium what does that show you recheck his potassium and it now seems to be about 6.3 okay cool um and then the glucose on that epoch is what 300 all right and is my ph is it changed from 7.1 and i'm looking at a vbg as of now your venous ph is now 7.00 7.00 okay all right so we got to figure out why he's bleeding you know why is, why is he he sounds like he's got some sort of like gastric ulcer or something if it's if it's dark i'm thinking it's already mixed in with the hydrochloric acid of the stomach or fluoric acid so I, I don't know why he's bleeding from his his stomach but um he is and he's also hypotensive so I'm starting to think, is he, is he losing blood? We've already seen he's lost a significant amount of blood through uh, vomiting, um, but trying to quantitate that is, is a little bit difficult. And so in the back of my mind, I'm wondering, all right, we, I have to assume that this is some sort of uh, GI bleed, and we've been giving him fluid up to this point. And so on my EPOC, I also get a hemoglobin and a hematocrit. And so I'm curious if my hemoglobin... Uh, my H and H is showing anything that would make me think that um, he's bleeding out. Besides the dilutional, uh, <laughs> dilutional effect that he may have from getting so much fluid. I was gonna say that's some dilute blood coming out because we said he he's probably received about four liters of. Yeah, I'd expect so a certain far. amount of it, but not. I mean, you know, if, if his hemoglobin comes back and it's seven, I'm gonna be like, all right, well, that's not that's not diluted. His hemoglobin is about four, and his hematocrit's about 12. <laughs> oh, cool. That makes it easy. All right, so <laughs> did they tell us anything about his, his H&H before we left? Did they just, like, not take that? No. Nope. Uh, upon admission okay. uh, at the ED, his hemoglobin was about nine. All right, folks, we're going to call it quits there. Check back in in two weeks for the second part of our little flying disaster with Tyler and Sam. We'll